Hello, my name is Julia Steyer, a contributor to Stage Raw, and welcome to Stages of Our City. Stage Raw is a Los Angeles-based theater discussion website that seeks to discover hidden theatrical gems and companies in the unexpected corners of our region. Join us for a conversation among Stage Raw critics about what they've seen in the area and sometimes beyond. From small black box theaters to large commercial venues, the critics of Stage Raw make it their mission to witness the wide range of stories that our theater makers are telling. Please welcome our moderator, founding editor, Stephen Lee Morris. This is Stages of Our City. Socks, Whitmore, and Inger Tudor welcome back to Stages of Our City. We have six shows to cover in this episode, four by Socks, two by Inger. Socks, let's start you out with a duo. Can you tell us about Dead Skin? Absolutely, I can tell you about Dead Skin. So this show is a one-act play. It is about a 17-year-old named Andy who lives with her father. Uh, Mother is out of the picture and is sort of a focus of the show, like trying to figure out where is the mother, why isn't she present. And also Andy is a young queer teenager, so the other facet that we focus on is her sexuality, her attraction to one of her best friends, and the way that that relationship unfolds and the way that Andy interacts with the stepmom, dad's girlfriend figure. The subtitle of this show is A Queer Australian Play. I actually did not know going into it. Somehow I missed the detail that it was an Australian play. And I was like, wow, we have Australian folks at the Hollywood Fringe. That's wonderful. I haven't seen anything from across that pond at the Fringe before. So I don't know if there were like Australian nuances that I missed as an American, but it did appear to be all Australian creative production team and cast. And I observed that the queer representation in this one was we didn't have any sense of queerness is wrong, per se. It was more about this this character having strong feelings and figuring out, like, how to be a person who is also queer. But there is, like, a very heavy betrayal that happens that I will not spoil that uh, really, really hits when it comes to uh, trusting someone with your queerness. That was really powerful. I felt that the flavor of this play was kind of experimental light. There were certain things about it (laughs) that that were just a little bit out there. Not as much so as, say, Who's Afraid of David Lynch, but it had just certain things that were outside of the norms of what we see in theater. One of the things they did was they had chapters. Every scene had a name, and there was a projector that would tell you the number and the name of the scene. And there is one scene where you see the number and there's no title. And having had that device for the whole rest of the play really made that have a punch when every other scene has been named and then this one is just the number that it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, the projector was used really interestingly, I thought. Not not heavily, sparingly, but I thought the use of the projector was great. They had a really powerful use of lighting design late in the show that sort of suspended time and space in a really interesting way and was crucial to the narrative really clicking in the audience's mind. So I thought that the experimentalism, which I'm putting in quotes, because what is experimentalism truly, was used strategically and well. And I think that Dead Skin is one of those things that's different from what you've seen before, but it's not unapproachable. Mm -hmm. Light, as you put. Experimental life. (laughs) Just a little bit out there. Tell us about Tom Paine based on nothing. 
Tom Paine is a solo show. One man, Johnny Patrick Yoder, plays this man named Tom Paine. And it's very philosophical. That's kind of the whole show is that it's a monologue as opposed to other types of solo shows that are flipping back and forth between characters. This character is speaking directly to you, rambling a little bit, but... He knows what he's talking about. There's a lot of subversion of expectations in this show where Tom Paine will set you up to say that this is going to happen or this is what we're going to talk about and then goes off the rails. And that's like a really core device to how the show's humor functions, which was really creative in the beginning. And like we all laughed and were very like, ah, he got us. But that was kind of the whole show. And so you do reach a point where I'm like, do I need an hour of this same device being used, this subversion of expectations? Yeah, yeah. I didn't feel like it necessarily needed to be as long as it was because- It sounds like that's in both shows, there was a subversion of expectations, especially just the leaving out the title of the scene in the in Dead Skin. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, there's a bit of that going around. Dead Skin is one of those that only briefly references its title. It sort of tells you how the title ties in at a late moment in the show and you see mm-hmm. it. And that, you know, changes the way you think about the title. It's one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Payne's title, based on nothing, I feel like is a philosophical reference that I don't get. Uh, because it's not based on the actual person, Tom Payne, except it kind of is because the philosophy of it and the way that it is philosophical and written is, it ties back to that, but it is not about Tom Payne, the person or the known person named Tom yes. Payne. Yes. So yeah, I didn't feel like this necessarily needed to be an hour long. There were really sharp moments of humor. There were some jokes and some setups, some premises that really <clears throat> landed. And then there were others where I'm like, when are we going to get to the next one of those? This is Dead Skin, a queer Australian play. That was the first one. Then Tom Payne based on nothing. Inger, you saw a production called Something in the Air. Yes. So Something in the Air is a 90-minute piece. It involves eight Asian-American actors who are all current students at CalArts. And it is a self-titled dark sci-fi tale of spring break gone wrong. I really enjoyed some of the themes and things that were touched on in this. I'm going to talk about what I thought went right and a little bit of about what I think could use some tweaking. So basically, it starts out as a story where you're introduced to eight different individuals as they prepare to go on spring break. And some of them are by themselves. Some of them are like two best friends, three guys who are good friends, two of them are frat boys, and a few people who are loners in their own right. And they all end up going to the Denver airport for spring break, which supposedly has this history attached to conspiracy theories and various other things that supposedly happened there. So there's an event and it's not clear if it's a uh, solar flare or if aliens have come or what it is. And it's purposely left to be somewhat nebulous so that you have to work that out. And then what happens are the, the students are forced to, suddenly they wake up, they are somewhere in the airport, possibly in the tunnels. They don't know what's going on and they have to rely on each other to get through it and I don't want to spoil it but it's not clear where they are and by that I mean are they in the present are they in the future are they sort of in what one might call the in-between the things that they dealt with that I thought were really powerful were issues that I think a lot of Asian students and Asian people have had to deal with in terms of hate crimes in terms of Mm -hmm. how Mm -hmm. do you 
how do you deal with your own self-image when you're in a country that is not treating you well, that is trying to define you in ways that are negative? And how do you combat that? And coming from different backgrounds. So one of the things that's dealt with is two of two of the students are actually from China and they actually still speak their native language. So they bond over that. There are two of the actresses who are browner skinned. So when they go through TSA, they're the ones who are kept aside and given a full body search, as opposed to the other Asian students who are lighter skinned and not browner. So they touch on, and there are other things they touch on as well, but I, those are two that stuck out to me. So here's, here are the things that I think need to be tweaked. When the students came together and they start working together and against each other as it goes on, I thought that was brilliant. I thought it went really well. There were some moments that included dance and movement, and I I thought that added to it. I think this doesn't necessarily need to be 90 minutes. There were a couple of moments that felt a little long, but as they dealt with their um, anxieties and issues and trying to move forward and figure out how to deal with the hand that's been dealt them, I thought they did a great job of that. The initial part where you're being introduced to people Unless I just missed it, there were many times where I didn't know until about a half hour into the play who was in front of me. And because of the way the program is set up, you're only given the actual actors' names Mm -hmm. and no photos. So you don't know who's playing which character. It's on the fringe page, but it's not in the actual program. So that was something I think would have been really helpful to to set up who each of these characters were with their names. The other thing was there are a couple of, there was one place where there's, where it was a great movement and choreographed piece, but I didn't know why it was happening. And I didn't know if the two people that were doing it were, if they were supposed to be drill team or something going on spring break or like what was the point of this particular little sort of dance thing. Those issues being said, I really think it's a strong piece. And I know that the director who is Cha Cha Tang, who is also one of the actors in the piece. I know it's experimental for her and she wants to keep working on it. And I think she has something great here, but it definitely needs some tweaking and some honing. But I think it deals with a lot of really important issues addressing the Asian community today. And I think specifically seeing young people deal with those issues was very refreshing. Thank you, Inger. Something in the air at the Hollywood Fringe. Socks, Battle Song of Boudicca. Battle Song of Boudicca is probably the most elaborate thing I've seen at Fringe this season in terms of the size of the cast, the scope of the work, the way that um, the choreography, the set pieces, everything, I would say was the most elaborate in, in Fringe terms that I've seen so far. It is a play set in 61 AD Britannia, and it is essentially very much a it's a battle play. It's a physical play that it heavily leans into war and a clashing of society themes. The chief Prosotagus, who I, ho- I hopefully didn't butcher that, chief Prosotagus is the leader of this Iceni tribe. And after he dies in battle, at a, in a battle that he was told to go into by the Romans, his wife, Boudicca, basically swears revenge. And so the rest of the play is a re- an epic revenge quest by Boudicca. The person who plays Boudicca is Jen Albert, who is also the mm-hmm. writer, director, production designer, producer, and fight choreographer. Very fringe, very Los Angeles. <laughs> and I thought Jen did an outstanding job as Boudicca. There was no weak link in the cast, but I was just really impressed by her acting abilities 
in that role on stage. And I also thought that the choreography, there was an extensive amount of fight choreography and it was all very intense and interesting. And even though this play is not normally like my speed kind of thing, I thought it was a really good version of what it is. I really appreciated the attention to blood on the swords. They would have the swords become bloody after each like stab every uh, interaction in which a sword entered a body i don't even know how they did it it was on stage magic maybe they were goring each other on stage and you just didn't know it could be uh, <laughs> but i was really impressed by that attention to detail i thought that some of their larger set pieces i was really impressed a because it's fringe and because having large set pieces is difficult to have at fringe and b i thought that they really worked and really added to the piece and were used successfully and strategically. They had this witch character, not a witch, a, a goddess, really, but she looked very witchy, that was a puppet head and two arms. And we had people dressed all in black that were moving some of these larger props and it came across incredibly. Mm -hmm. It was one of those examples of a theatrical story trying to do what film, what we see in films a lot without the advantage of post-production. And I thought they were really successful. Using old school theater devices in a way to mm -hmm. tell a kind of a new story. So your Own Crown, you saw a play called Your Own Crown. I did indeed. Your Own Crown is a one-act musical. This is another one where I didn't have all the information going in. This is actually an all uh, like middle school student cast. The person who wrote and directed this is their teacher, and this was a class of Asian American students telling this story. So there are a lot of things about the way it's executed that very much feel like a story that is written for kids and performed by kids. Mm -hmm. But there were actually some elements of it that were surprisingly grabbing and interesting. I thought that the core premise of the narrative, which is that this group of Chinese American students have a teacher and a principal who don't really care for them. And then you have a new transfer student who is mute, who uses ASL to communicate, and a new substitute teacher to replace the um, the drunk alcoholic teacher. It was very interesting seeing a child portray a, a drunk teacher. Uh, <laughs> but we have the new substitute teacher who comes in and just tries to offer them the compassion and the individual interest that they need in order to grow as students. It's got a little bit of that Matilda school of rock kind of vibe where it's a class it's about the group the ensemble but each character has something unique to offer right personality right. trait I really appreciated that the entire show was interpreted in ASL we had a live ASL interpreter on the corner of the stage who would rest when the the actor playing the mute student came up and would do sign of their own so I thought that was a really intelligent way to plan around that and do that. The the fact that there was ASL and that the themes the themes around being born unable to communicate with your voice but still desperately having things to say that was really moving. The mute character is actually played by a speaking actor who will have soliloquies essentially where when everyone else is gone this actor speaks and articulates the thing that they can't say. Mm -hmm. in in their character's actuality so that was an interesting way to tell that story and do execute that device 
Right. It's not something I would recommend for normal fringe fair because a lot of us are looking for things at a more professionally performed, written, et cetera level. Because it is by kids for kids, truly. But if you've got a youngin in your household who wants to see some fringe, this is a great fit. And I think see some other youngins, they might identify. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I would say that even though Hollywood Fringe is not necessarily meant for this kind of theater, that it provides a unique opportunity for young Why not? Why not? Hollywood, Hollywood Fringe is meant for Performing everyone. on stage because of the yeah. way that Fringe makes theater accessible. Your own crown at the Hollywood Fringe. Inger, can you close us out, please, with Mr. Malcolm's music section? <laughs> yes, and uh, to sort of dovetail off of Socks, this is a show done by adults, but for kids. Mr. Malcolm's Music Factory is a story about, oh, and, and also I have to add now, amazing small puppets, but really amazing puppets and puppeteers who were in it. So Mr. Malcolm is a, um, he has a music factory and he and his cohorts who are Sanda Wanda, who is a lizard, Willow the Weasel, and uh, Lord Boom Boom Stick, and I can't remember what Lord Boom Boom Stick was. They help him create this music and he has a lighthouse. And what happens over the course of their creating music and having to get the beats and the rhythms out to the world are they are attacked by the bads. And the bads are these big purple clouds. And they stand for big anxiety-driven splotches. So as the story goes on, you discover that these bads are attacking lighthouses, get the metaphor, taking out the light around the world. And as the bads attack, people start being overwhelmed by emotions and anxiety. So what this, what this play is actually dealing with for children is how you handle when you're overwhelmed by emotions and anxiety. And so it shows the different ways that people interact when they don't know what to do, when they're afraid of hurting someone's feelings, when they're sort of encouraged to lie, thinking they're doing a good thing because they're helping someone when in actuality, the truth would be a better thing to deal with. Mm -hmm. And coupled with that is also <clears throat> teaching kids about not just things like mindfulness and gratitude as a way to combat the bads, but also things like melody and harmony and rhythm and R&B and and different beats like a polka becoming something else. Mm -hmm. So he, Malcolm Moore, who plays Mr. Malcolm, is a teacher and a drum circle facilitator and a professional drummer. So he's managed to take the things that are in his wheelhouse and use them to teach children how to deal with their emotions and how to look for the light in the world and to be the light. So I thought it was very well done. It was really entertaining. It's very short. I forget how long it is. I feel like it's 45 mm -hmm. minutes tops. There were tons of kids there. They loved it. Their parents loved it because, you know, we all need to be reminded about yeah. mindfulness. Why not? Yeah. And again, just a shout out to, um, I'm going to say this incorrectly, but Chanel Desatelles for creating The Lighthouse. Um, Steve Troop, Russ Walker, and Christian Anderson, who was also one of the puppeteers, they created the puppets that were used. And full disclosure, I didn't know until after I decided to see this that the gentleman who was the bads is a, is a friend of mine. Uh, so it was good to see him on stage. I hadn't seen him in a while. So that is Mr. Malcolm's Music Factory. It is, again, not your typical fringe fair because it is for kids, but it was it was delightful and it was very well done. And I think if parents are taking their kids, they'll get something out of this as well. It's not just for the children.
Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Inger. Stages of Our City is produced by Julia Steyer, Sox Whitmore, and Inger Tudor. Thank you so much for joining us in this first half of this week's Hollywood Fringe coverage. Always a pleasure. Thank you all for joining us today on this episode of Stages of Our City. To learn more about Stage Raw or the Los Angeles theater scene, visit www.stageraw.com. And be sure to support us on Patreon so that we may continue to highlight the work of theater makers here in the City of Angels. I'm Julia Steyer, and this has been Stages of Our City. Till next time!